Welcome to Gucci Row on the Rebel HD2. I'm your host, Kevin Kelly, with co-host Will Despart. Sitting Gucci Row like they say up at UNLV. Thanks for tuning in to our courtside conversations covering all things NBA. Young Rebel, young money, nothing you can tell me. Welcome to the first episode of Gucci Row. I'm your host, Kevin Kelly. I'm here with my co-host, Will Despart. Um, and since it's episode one, we'll just start with uh, a bit of an intro about both of us, um, you know, how we got here, why we like talking about what we're going to talk about, what we're going to talk about. Um, so I'll start. Um, I'm from, well, we're both from upstate New York, but um, right outside of Albany area, um, we, uh, I guess it's important to say we're going to talk about basketball in this podcast. Um, we both have a lot of experience from being around the sport, playing, watching, um, yeah, throughout our whole life. So, um, a bit about that. I, uh, I played, I started watching when I was five years old during the 2000, I'm going to age myself, uh, 2004 season. And, um, luckily a year or two years later, I got to see, uh, the, my favorite player and, my favorite team, the Heat, win their first uh, championship. So, um, Will, a bit about your watching and. Well, I'm Will, like we mentioned. Um, I'm currently finishing up at UNLV, so I'm a student here, and I work for the Review Journal as a sports stats editor. So, hopefully, that can be where I can provide some expertise as far as statistics and history and stuff goes. Um, like Kevin said, we were we're from a small town outside of upstate, outside of Albany, New York, called Averill Park. Um, I played basketball up until high school. I've uh, been watching basketball my whole life, and I'm a fanatic for it, just like I am for pretty much every other sport, but basketball especially. So hopefully we can share some good things. Yeah, and uh, we both we played together, you know, growing up on our uh, our, ca- our you know local area teams and whatnot. And uh, yeah, I played um, up through middle school and high school, and. Uh, um, and then stopped playing after that. And then, honestly, my uh, appreciation and viewership of the game since then has gotten way bigger. Like, I'm um, more involved and uh, engaged in the game than I have been for the previous 15 years, 17 years of my life. Certainly. And um, so for the podcast itself, it's obviously basketball. We're going to try and dive deeper into the NBA specifically. Um, and... Uh, the tone is going to be <laughs> hopefully avoiding the hot take um clicky style of you know what twitter has turned into and espn and all the talking heads if i can interject it'll be like the anti first take we're not we're not trying to push out hot takes we're kind of just trying to analyze basketball from like a objective standpoint exactly uh, i think there's um i think jj reddick's newsletter puts it well it's, it's called death to hot takes so uh, i think that pretty much describes the tone we're going for um because uh, to add to that i think that the game has never been better i think that the league has never been better the personalities the gameplay but somehow it gets taken away from that by narratives that talking heads use to um just bring clicks and people to their company. Absolutely. So, in um, in that tone, we're gonna try and break things down uh, objectively and use real analysis of basketball as opposed to, um, you know, interesting storylines that people might want to hear and isn't even necessarily reflective of what's going on. 
So to start, we'll go into these both of these conference finals and um, just break a bit down about what happened and try and put it in some historical context. So first we'll start with the Nuggets swept the Lakers um, and, and secured their first finals appearance ever, which was also their first ever sweep in the playoffs. And they swept LeBron, which was his third time being swept all time. Um, the two others came in the finals in 07 against the Spurs and then in 2018 against your Warriors. Um, and so that puts LeBron, not to spend too much time on the Lakers and LeBron because they got swept, but uh, that puts him at 12-3 and all-time in sweeps. Um, he's been on top of 12 of them, and this was his third time going down 0-4. Um, Jokic had the most triple-doubles ever in a single run before the finals even started with eight, and he passed Wilt with seven. Um, I don't know if you want to just get into a bit about Jokic and what he's done. in the. Well, he's the best player in the NBA. I think that's pretty objective at this point as we're going to talk about objectivity. I think the one criticism he could have, you could have had about him coming into this playoffs was his playoff performance, which I think wasn't even that warranted considering last year. His partner in crime was Fasu Campazo. I don't know if I pronounced his first name correct, but he certainly I don't even think he's in the NBA at this point. If he is, he's no, at the right. end of the bench. Yeah. Um no, he, it's he a lost good to the defending champions as well. So I don't I never bought into that narrative to begin with. And I thought going into this series, I thought they were just objectively the better team than the Lakers. And the Lakers the Lakers fans are kinda like you could tell Laker fans and like fans of the bigger market teams are just not familiar with Jokic and how serious his game is and how much of a force he is. It's kind of like you see him and he's this goofy, tall, 6'11", Balkan man, and you don't think he's going to be like one of the greatest big men of to ever step on the basketball court, For but sure. he's a force. For sure. It's a good point. Um, and I think that also leads into what we were saying about narratives and about how despite this guy winning two straight MVPs and um, leading his team to the number one seed in the West, uh, people find, like 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 Chris Mannix, find him to be just unenjoyable to talk about, which is insane. Yeah, I can't even, like, buy into that because it's just... To me, it's um, the, the run that Jokic is on right now is uh, pretty reminiscent of Jokic and the... I'm sorry, of Giannis and the, and the narratives that were... Um, going around him after he won his two MVPs and hadn't really had any playoff success. And people were saying, like, you know, is he really that guy? Can he match this in the playoffs? And I think we're seeing just as he did show everyone in 2021, Jokic is showing everyone this year that he is fully capable and, like you said, just didn't have the uh, cast around him. And I think I think if the Nuggets were, like, a sexier team and a sexier franchise and Jokic was, like, a sexier player so to speak as in terms of like play style and like appeal to the fans I think they would have been the overwhelming favorite going into the Lakers series and they would have been the overwhelming favorite to win the championship after the Sun series and that just didn't happen because people it's like they don't pay attention yeah he's not the fastest in the league he doesn't jump the highest by any means um and he's not a guy who is going to go into a presser and say the most uh click grabbing things he uh he just you know is uh, really himself and not afraid to be. Um, so going back into that, he averaged 27.5, 14.5, and 11.8.5 in his, um, the Western Conference Finals on his way to the Western Conference MVP. After that, he was asked about it, 
and his quote was, to be honest, I don't think about MVPs anymore. And <laughs> although that might be a, a cliche type of comment that a lot of top players in the league sort of get to, um, I don't think any of them really mean it, whereas Jokic doesn't seem to care about anything individual. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. I also think when you get to the point where you win like two or three MVPs in the NBA, you're just you're you're re- you're going to recognize the point that it's going to be a lot harder for you to win that third or fourth MVP because of the historical context that would put you in. And you're going to it seems focus way more on team success at that point after you've already reached a, you know, a certain pinnacle of of individual success. Especially if you're someone like Jokic who needs the playoff success to establish his legacy and certify himself as one of the great big men of all time. Yep, 100%. Um, So to stay on this series, uh, it would be a complete injustice to not mention Jamal Murray, who averaged 32.5 points in the series as a second option, which is insane. Is insane. It's 11th all-time in points per game in the conference finals. And he also averaged six and a half rebounds and five and a half assists. Again, as the second option, I'm not sure that any second option in history has averaged 30 in the conference finals. It was probably the closest second option we've seen as far as like a guard to like Kobe and Shaq. Like it really did seem like a Kobe and Shaq type of thing with him and Jokic. Like it's a good comparison. The big man, the guard, the big man's established, but the guard is still making his way up and. And, you know, how Murray relies so much on shot-making as opposed to distributing, and he hit a lot of clutch shots in this this series. Um, It's so incredible how efficient he is, too, because, like, this is a new thing in the NBA where all these guards are so efficient and these points aren't coming. Like, I was looking at old Allen Iverson's stat lines, and he was going, like, 10 for 21, 10 for 31 in these games, and, like, that's not an efficient game. Kobe wasn't playing efficient basketball most of the time. Like, Jamal Murray's out there, and he's having incredibly efficient games. Jokic is having incredibly efficient games. 52% from the field, 40% from three, and 95% from the line for Murray (laughs) this series. Yeah, just as efficient as it gets. Um, And so... The la- uh, somehow the narrative has not been about these things that we just mentioned, and it's been about Lakers and the LeBron future, which, to be fair, he does seem to have a knack for making things, um, you know, revolve around him- <laughs> himself course, in yeah. the offseason. So to move on to the next series, the second uh, the Eastern Conference Finals was the Heat versus Celtics, and this one was a real roller coaster. Um, the Heat won the first two games on the road, Jimmy averaged 31 and 9 steals through the first game. Or sorry, 31 points per game and had a combined 9 steals through the first two. The Celtics go up 7 in game 3 or uh in game 3 and then Grant Williams hits a 3 and talks to Jimmy. <laughs> and that is where a lot of things flipped. The Heat went on a uh 24 to run after he he got in Jimmy's face and it's clear that he woke up the bear. I was wondering your thoughts on that. I don't know. I didn't really buy into the whole waking up the bear narrative as much as others did. I'm sure it had an impact on Jimmy's play, but I felt like Jimmy was going to do what Jimmy was going to do at that point regardless. And I don't even hate that Grant Williams got in his face. I think that's the type of edge you need in those games. So I think that's fair. Um, and and I think there's something to be said about even if Jimmy does say that that helped him, he would have got the edge anyway. But he was quoted as saying that... <laughs> That Grant doing that definitely uh, 
you know, turn the switch a little bit for him. I also just think Jimmy's going to say that because he likes to stir the pot. Yeah, no, it's true. And there was a lot of mutual respect there. It wasn't like, you know, um, either one of those guys were going up to the presser and um, not respecting the other one as a player and as a, as a, as a man. So. I think if anyone respect that type of brashness, it would be Jimmy considering the calls he's made before these playoffs. And Grant, too. Um, I don't know if you remember this year their series against the Sixers, Grant had his head stomped on by Joel Embiid. <laughs> yeah, and was... he, he chalked it up to being just playoff basketball. So I, I agree, yeah. Um, and then so uh, also in that in that game three, Gabe Vincent had a career 29 points on 11 of 14 from the field, 6 of 9 from 3, whereas Tatum and Brown combined for 26 points. Um, uh, early in the series, both Tatum and Brown just couldn't find shots, uh, forcing shots, um, not getting into it, just uh, flowing offense, a lot of ISO. It definitely seemed like the pressure got to them the first couple games where, like, you could tell, I think maybe they bought into the ESPN analytics, maybe not really, but everyone didn't give the Heat any type of chance. The Celtics were supposed to cruise in and sweep. and 97%. Yeah, no – I agree. Um, I think, at the very least, that was what gave them a slow start. Uh, you know, eventually after game two, when you lose game two at home against the eight seed, yeah, that's if that's not enough to it was trouble yeah, for sure. They're also just not a team that's performed that well when the cards are stacked against them or when they need to like push it. Like until they got down three zero, like historically, this isn't a team that like does what they need to do when they need to do it. Right. I mean. They have had so much young success in their career, but just seem to fall short every time. Um, I uh, heard this morning Jalen Brown, because he's got his um, extension coming up where he might get $300 million, and obviously there's been talks for the last year about he was in the KD trade rumors um, and whatnot. And so uh, it just is interesting to see uh, where they go from here. For sure. Um, so then, that said, after Game 3, the Seas did turn around and dominate Games 4 and 5. Um, uh, that Those two were... It's not much to say about it as a Heat fan other than it felt like every single shot they took was going to fall, whether I was watching the screen or turned away because I couldn't. Once um, I saw the Vegas line for Game f- 4, it was, it was like 8.5 for the Celtics, and I was like, see, there's something that's going to happen. They know something we don't because like there's no logical explanation for that so then i figured okay the celtics are probably going to come in here and win by at least 15 yep push it and they did so and they did yep and then um uh so they won four and five game six they came back to miami which was uh a celtics win 104 103 one of the great basketball games of all time easily the best game of the series yep um coming down the stretch we were down two the Heat were down too, sorry. Jimmy foul, got fouled on the baseline by Al Horford. And they reviewed it and found that he was had both feet behind the line. And then instead of three seconds, they put 2.1 on the clock. So Jimmy hits all three free throws. We go up one. And then on the other, they call a timeout. <laughs> one of Missoula's good timeouts. He's saying we because he's a Heat fan, by the way. Correct. Um, and then so on the other end, other end of the floor on the inbounds, Max Struess is guarding White, who is inbounding the ball, and he's turned away from him, kind of uh, helping deny Tatum the ball because 
clearly they want the last shot to go to him. So he does. He's able to force the ball out of Tatum's hand. They pass it into Smart, and Smart immediately gets into uh, uh, a deep fallaway three, which was in and out, and frankly, I thought was going to go in. But uh, after the pass, Derek White jetted towards the hoop out from the inbounds, and Struess was kind of off towards the top of the key and wasn't able to recover as quickly. And Derek White flew in and got a tip in with .1 left to win the game. And it really happened so fast. Like, watching on TV, I didn't even process what had happened. Like, I thought, okay, did he, did it go in? Did he tip it in? When right. he tipped it in, was there enough time on the clock? And at the time, it looked like there was no way all of those things aligned and that this would count. And then you see the replay, and it's like your jaw drops. Yep. And I'm, uh, I want to say it was ESPN. So Stan Van Gundy was talking about how there was no way it was before the buzzer and the game's over. The Heat won. Jeff Van Gundy. Was it TNT? Well, Jeff is ESPN. Stan's TNT, isn't it? No, it's the opposite. Oh. But regardless, one of them, one of the Van Gundys, uh, you know, couldn't believe it. And in the moment, maybe it's just because of my bias and my, uh, I guess, pessimism, for lack of a better term, but I, uh, I didn't have any hope that it was after the buzzer. And so, uh, you know, that that felt like uh that felt like the nail in the coffin almost uh because that was three in a row it felt like that was the game to win we were at home we were up we got a late lead and we blow it on the last play um so that one definitely felt like uh it'd be tough to come back from but then we game 7 we come in to Boston and just dominate um fr- from the jump there was uh the Celtics only came within seven one time, and it was Caleb Martin who just completely shut that run down and, and secured us the win. Um, so, which I guess to bring some stats and context into this, so of the, there's only been 150, including the Heat series, games that went to 3 0. And of those 150, it has only went to game seven three times. And the trailing team has never won, which luckily is still true. But just just a, an unfathomable uh, series from the a rematch of last year's conference finals, um, and it certainly lived up to it. For sure. Um, after the game, Jimmy, when talking about Heat culture, um, because. I think it's important to mention this team was down late in the second game, the second play-in game. Lost to the Hawks first game, had to place the bull, face the Bulls, and late in the game we're down, looking like we weren't going to make the playoffs at all. And we win that game, get the eighth seed, and now without Tyler Hero or Victor Oladipo, we make a deep eight seed run and get into the finals. Um, so, on that, Jimmy was quoted as saying, "When a guy goes down." The next guy could fill in that gap, but do exactly what that guy when he did when he went down, and do it at a high level. He said, then be humble enough to know that when that guy comes back, you've got to take a step back and do your role. Nobody ever complains. They always do exactly what you ask of them to do, which is why you want to play with guys like that, which is why they are the reason that we win so many games. I don't call them role players. I call them teammates because your role can change on any given day. I think that that is uh, that quote really embodies what people say when they talk about heat culture. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, I thought it was a great quote too. Just Jimmy knows, like he's he's got it. He needs these guys for the finals. He can't do it by himself, especially against a team like the Nuggets. So there's no point taking all the credit. And exactly, and 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 with guys like Caleb and and Caleb Martin and Gabe Vincent, um, just just shined out of their role and and uh, got us here, which I agree we would not be without. So I think it's important to mention that Caleb Martin. <laughs> For the series, averaged 19, six and a half rebounds and over an assist on 60% from the field, 47% from three, and 89% from the free throw line. Only six guys in history have scored more uh, points per game on 60%, those being Shaq, LeBron, Dwayne Wade, Sean Kemp, Kareem, and Dwight Howard. Pretty good company. All right, next uh, we'll be discussing a bit about the uh, front office decisions and moving of coaches around the league, which uh, seems to me like it's been a lot busier than than a lot of the more recent years. Um, be- we'll begin with uh, the Pistons, who, f- who not fired but moved Dwayne Casey from their head coach to the front office. And while their head coach is still unfilled, they uh, the top candidates are Monty Williams, Charles Lee, Kenny Atkinson, and Jay Wright. Um, I don't know if you want to get into any of those, but right now it seems like Monty is their highest priority. Yeah, I mean, it all checks out. I think Kenny Atkinson would be a great hire for them. I think he's probably one of the better assistant coaches on the board still. But, yeah, yeah I think... Monty deserves a job. Obviously, I don't think he should have been let go in Phoenix. So, mm-hmm. I think that's what we'll get into a bit about, uh, you know, whether these are justified or whatnot. But I agree. I think um, Kenny is one of my favorite young coaches in the league. Um, you know, he had the the offer with the Hornets last year that he took and <laughs> backed out, which yep. I kind of I understand. But I think the Pistons would be a good fit for him. I'd like to see him there. Um, the next one is the Rockets, who fired Steven Silas and brought Ime Udoka in, who uh, was um, let go by the Celtics last year after uh, um, a uh, controversy within the, um, their front office and uh, employees. Um, so the Rockets, I thought this was interesting, the Rockets owner, Tillman Fertitta, who hired uh, Udoka, said that he is, quote, not concerned about the behavior that led to the year-long suspension. Yeah, it's about on par with him, Tillman. Yeah, I remember seeing uh, a video of him like a month ago, and he was in uh, uh, New Orleans, and uh, someone uh, someone asked him about this was before the the lottery odds, and someone asked him about Victor, and he said, uh, "Pray for Victor." So, yeah, he doesn't seem like one of the more um, quiet owners um next will be one that i thought was really interesting the bucks fired mike budenholzer after he won two-time coach of the year in 2015 and 19 and then led them to the finals championship in 2021 um i think this one is interesting and we really get into talking about like whether it was justified or whether it's scapegoating or and I think that, I think that Budenholzer had some some 
uh, issues as was seen in the Heat series. Uh, and you're always going to have to answer questions when you lose as a one seed to the eight seed. That's for sure. But I, I think the Bucks like probably wish they waited a bit longer to fire him because considering what the Heat did after, it's kind of just like, especially since the Heat have had the Bucks number. I guess you could like use that as a reason why Bodenholzer had to go. But and it just seems to me like they stuck by him for so long without seeing success. It seems weird that you'd jump ship two years after seeing such high success. But they brought in Adrian Griffin of the Raptors, who was uh uh who was their assistant coach. And um they're working on a contract with him right now, so we'll see how that works. Um the Sixers fired Doc Rivers, who is seventeen and thirty two all time in series clinchers, the worst in the NBA. This one I I I I think is maybe the most justified and I don't want to say that to speak down on Doc. I think Doc Rivers is an extraordinary coach. Uh a lot of his winning resume really speaks for itself, but there were some serious issues there that weren't um being addressed and I think it's time for just new leadership. They uh they've gotten so far and sputtered out so many times. Yeah, Doc, you can't count on Doc to get a team over the hump at this point. Like, it's... Yeah, no, I agree. And, um... I agree. It, it's tough because he's got so much, um, you know, winning in his history, but just when those moments, he's always flamed out. He wins until he has to win. Like, the 2008 ring carries so much weight for him, and really that was an extraordinary team that shouldn't have lost at any point. And if you look at their playoff run, the 2008 Celtics almost lost in the first round. Mm. They got taken to seven games by the Atlanta Hawks. And then the, I guess like his other... Doc is so close to just being a guy who lost in history as a, a, just a player who failed at coaching. Right. The other one would be the Clippers, where, you know, they had... Uh, a, a pretty a, not exceptional but a pretty good roster one of the best in the west many times and, and didn't really get there looking back on those Clippers teams though it, I don't know if there was ever a year where the Clippers should have made the finals like they should have they shouldn't have lost the series they lost like especially to the Rockets I think when they went down when they were up 3-1 and they blew it mm-hmm. but I mean, there. I don't really recall there being a year where the Clippers were, like, the favorite coming out of the West for, like, the entire season, not just pockets of the season where Chris Paul was looking like an MVP That's and what Blake I was, was say. looking fine. It just seems that um, you could have got a little more out of Chris Paul's prime is what it seems to me. But, no, I agree mostly. Um, next would be the Suns, who fired Monty Williams, who was the <laughs> – last year's coach of the year and the 2021 Western Conference Finals champ. Their head coach right now is unfilled, but Kevin Young, who is their assistant, and Doc are the highest odds. How would you feel about KD and Doc together? I mean, if he can, like, form a good relationship with KD, I think it's fine. I think the key to the Suns' coaching position is managing the personalities, less so than being an X's and O's coach. And I think that's Doc's strength is really managing personalities. 
instead of being an X's and O's coach because he's shown he's not very good at making adjustments, and the teams that he's led to victories were teams that were had a, plenty of star players who played their roles. That's a good analysis. I, I agree. I think that I think that it would be the best fit for Doc for sure. But moving on, um, the the Raptors also fired their coach of the year, Nick Nurse, who was a twenty nineteen champ. And their uh, head coach is also unfilled, but the top candidates right now being Steve Nash, J.J. Redick, and Mike Budenholzer. Any thoughts on that? The Raptors' Nick Nurse firing was probably the one I didn't understand out of like the most out of all of them because like he is a fine coach, like he gets the job done. And the Raptors weren't a team that really had any expectations going into this season. They were a team that at the deadline was expected to sell. I mean. I don't. I think that's just one of the lateral moves. Like, I, I agree. You fire Nick Nurse. Where, who who are you going to get that's better than Nick Nurse? It's not Steve Nash because Steve Nash showed he was terrible in Brooklyn. Yeah, I mean JJ Redick's never coached at the NBA level in his life. That could just be another Steve Nash moment. And then, I don't know. I feel like that was just. I feel like there's no improvement that would make that firing worth yeah. it in year one. No, I could agree, and I think that you're seeing that because Nurse is maybe the most sought-after candidate uh, on the market. But so that makes four of the last six coaches of the year out of a job, um, which is pretty insane and seems to me like it's the most volatile job in sports. And the quote is that you're hired to get fired. Um, According to the Sports Teller website, in the last 13 seasons, seven teams have made five or more coaching changes with the longest tenured coaches in the league being Pop from 1996, Greg Popovich, Eric Spolstra, who's been around since with the Heat since 08, Steve Kerr with, since, uh, with the Warriors since 2014. It's crazy he's already the third longest tenured coach. It and It only, shows how the carousel revolves. Yep, and it only gets uh, more recent from then. And then Mike Malone is four uh, on the Nuggets, which was he's been there from 2015. And then fifth, you get all the way up to Taylor Jenkins, who's been with the Grizzlies for only three seasons. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, so uh, that that seems that's uh, it, it definitely seems like it's um, uh, at least somewhat of a scapegoated position. Certainly. Um. So closing up here, uh, I think that um. I think I think that this is uh, going to be a finals for history. I'm not sure that I'm not sure <laughs> that I'm s- extremely confident in my Heat, but uh, I love Spo's chances to put things together, and uh, hopefully, Hero comes back and offers us something, and um, we make it a fun series. But I think the Nuggets sweep. I'll put that on record. I think the Nuggets <laughs> sweep. I think the Cinderella story ends, and I think Jokic wins his first Finals MVP. Well, I guess we'll find out. Hopefully it's Jimmy that does. That's a wrap for Gucci Row this week. Thanks for tuning in on the Rebel HD2 with your hosts, Kevin Kelly and Will Dustport. You can find us on Instagram at 1KevKelly and Will Dustport. We'll see you next time on the Rebel HD2.